Hello and welcome to the APTA Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group Podcast Discussion on Skew Deviation. I'm your host, Pooja Garwal, a physical therapist by profession with 25 years of clinical experience in a hospital setting. Skew deviation is an unusual ocular deviation or vertical misalignment caused by abnormal prenuclear vestibular input to the ocular motor nuclei, most commonly due to central causes. It can impact the outcome of vestibular rehabilitation and is thereby critical it be identified and managed by the appropriate clinician. We're extremely fortunate to have with us today an expert in the field, Dr. Daniel Gold who is an assistant professor of neurology, ophthalmology, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, neurosurgery, and emergency medicine at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's a neurologist with fellowship training in neuroophthalmology from the University of Pennsylvania and additional training in neurovestibular disorders at John Hopkins. Dr. Gold is also the director of the Ocular Motor and Vestibular Otoneurology Fellowship within the Division of the Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders. Dr. Gold has an active clinical practice and has received awards for neurology resident teaching and clinical excellence and for outstanding educational contributions to the Neuroophthalmology Virtual Education Library. Dr. Gold, along with his colleague, Dr. Michael Schubert, have an accepted paper in the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy titled Ocular Misalignment in Dizzy Patients, Something's Askew, which would be published soon. Welcome, Dr. Gold, to the podcast. It is such an honor to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Jumping on to the first question, we would like to know what tropias and phorias are. So when performing tests of ocular alignment, um, the most common is alternate cover testing, where you're simply moving the hand or an occluder from one eye to the next eye and back and forth, looking to see mm -hmm. if the eyes move. So the first, once we know that the, the eye um, that is uncovered is moving in, um, which is called an exodeviation, or whether the eye, when uncovered, is moving out, which is an esodeviation, or mm -hmm. whether one eye is moving up and one eye is moving down, which is a hyperdeviation or sometimes a hypodeviation, depending on how you name it. We then okay. want to know whether it's a phoria or whether it's a tropia. A phoria is defined as a deviation with one eye viewing, um, as would happen with alternate cover testing. One eye is being occluded, the other eye is viewing the target. Um, phorias are usually concomitant, meaning that really change depending on the gaze direction so the patient can look up, down, left, right, and the amount of deviation, the amount of the ESO or the EXO or the hyperphoria is about the same um, throughout. Phorias can be normal, um, but they might, might not be. Tropias are a deviation with both eyes viewing, and they mm -hmm. can be concomitant, or non-concomitant, rather, um, where the ocular alignment does change with gaze direction. So if a patient has a third nerve palsy or a fourth or a sixth nerve palsy, these are non-concomitant deviations. Um, oftentimes, the patient will experience double vision, which by itself implies that the deviation is, is um, with both eyes viewing the target. 
And the way to bring this out to differentiate tropia versus phoria is often using a cover-uncover test where the patient's looking at the target with both eyes, the right eye is covered, looking for a, a refixation movement um, of the left eye, the eye is uncovered, and again, looking for a refixation movement. And you would do that for both eyes. You would cover and then uncover each eye individually. Sometimes mm -hmm. people have a preference and they, they look with the right eye. Um, they are, aren't viewing the target with the left eye. So um, the, the viewing eye, when covered, will move to so that the, um, the eye that wasn't seeing the target now needs to pick up fixation of the target. So the distinction between phoria and tropia is important because many people have, many normal people will have a small horizontal ESO or exophoria, um, while fewer healthy subjects will have a small vertical phoria. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was going to lead me to my next question. If mm -hmm. phorias are always normal. So phorias can be normal. Um, usually, although sometimes a, a skew deviation is small enough, for instance, so that the brain can fuse the two images um, and only a small hyperphoria is measured. Um, another example would be a patient with a right six nerve palsy, where if you have the patient look to the right side, you should see an esotropia in the acute setting. But if it's very small, the patient might only have an esophoria when they're looking straight ahead or when, when they're looking in the opposite direction using the mm -hmm. left lateral rectus or the left six, which works. So mm -hmm. to answer, <laughs> the phorias are, are usually normal, um, but in some situations, depending on the direction of gaze, depending on the chronicity of a condition, depending on how well a a patient is able to fuse for a small deviation, um, a phoria can be seen in a pathologic state, but usually okay. they are normal. Okay. Other considerations, um, if, if you're doing ocular alignment testing, you want to make sure that the patient's vision is such in each eye that they can see the target. So if you're presenting an X across the room, you need to first mm -hmm. make sure that with the right eye and with the left eye, they can see that X. Okay. Um, and how do phorias and tropias impact rehab outcomes for vestibular diagnosis from the standpoint of a vestibular therapist? Right. So there's not much in the literature um, with regard to this specific topic, although it has been shown that in patients with visual vertigo, uh, with an optokinetic exposure therapy program, there, there may be less improvement. This was in uh, when there's a binocular disorder present. In this specific study that I'm referring to with uh, Dr. Pablo, Dr. Bronstein, they took some patients who had fourth nerve palsies, convergence insufficiency, or esotropia. None of mm -hmm. them actually had a skew deviation, but binocular disorders. Um, and, and their improvement with a, this optokinetic exposure therapy was less than it was in patients who did not have a binocular disorder. So it's thought that mm -hmm. perhaps uh, because of the interactions between posture and vision um, seem to rely on ocular proprioception, it's been proposed that ocular proprioceptive signals may be unreliable in the presence of an ocular misalignment. And this may lead to ineffective sensory reweighting re and therefore a continued reliance on visual inputs. Mm -hmm. For skew okay. specifically, um, 
rehab considerations include the fact that that patients usually have diplopia. If somebody has a vestibular problem, they have imbalance, patients tend to be over-reliant on vision to begin with. And if they're seeing two everything, obviously that's going to affect uh, their ability to navigate the world. Also, right. patients with a skew oftentimes also have semicircular canal pathway asymmetry or injury, um, which is oftentimes central. And if we're talking about a skew deviation, which usually is suggestive of a brain stem or a cerebellar disorder, those patients may have hemiparesis or sensory loss or cerebellar ataxia as well, all of which, of course, are very important to rehabilitation. Right. Okay. Um, from a therapist's perspective, are there any clinical signs um, um, on an exam that would be red flags requiring a specialty referral to neuro-ophthalmology or neuro-optometry? Right. So particularly in the, the acute vestibular syndrome, so the patient who comes in with continuous vertigo and imbalance and head motion intolerance and nausea and vomiting and spontaneous nystagmus, any patient who presents with the acute vestibular syndrome and has vertical diplopia, um, there, there should be a very high suspicion for this representing a skew deviation. In these okay. patients, part of the, the three-step HINTS exam that's been shown to be superior to even MRI in the first couple days as mm -hmm. far as sensitivity and specificity in, in detecting an acute stroke, um, by definition, if, if you see in these patients any vertical refixation with alternate cover testing, this should be considered skew deviation until proven otherwise. And if you see mm -hmm. this patient um, in the outpatient setting, then you want to send them to the emergency department immediately. Um, right. If, if the, the onset of the vertical diplopia and what you suspect is a skew deviation was greater than seven days, they might not necessarily need to go to the emergency department, um, but they will definitely need expeditious neuroimaging. If they've had a stroke, we want to do everything in our power to minimize the risk of, of another stroke, uh, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, also, right. with a, an acquired fourth nerve palsy, um, often occurs in isolation without dizziness or vertigo, um, and, and neuro-ophthalmology consult will be helpful in this setting. Usually, with mm -hmm. a skew deviation, the patient has uh, a balance problem. They have other findings on the exam of, of semicircular canal imbalance, spontaneous nystagmus, for instance. Um, so mm -hmm. those patients need to be worked up or, or sent to a neurologist or neuro-ophthalmologist uh, expeditiously. Okay. Going on to my next question, what is the role of prisons and when should they be prescribed for correction? So the good thing about SKUs, um, which are due to, as you said, imbalance in the utricle ocular motor pathways, they tend to resolve and improve pretty quickly. So um, a patient with, with an acute brainstem stroke may have a skew deviation for sometimes only a couple of days, sometimes a couple of weeks, but they usually mm -hmm. do get better spontaneously. So if the patient uh, is symptomatic enough, if, if they're experiencing vertical diplopia, then, then simply using um, a couple strips of semi-opaque scotch tape or satin gift tape over one of their lenses is sometimes mm -hmm. sufficient. Sometimes patients prefer to wear a pirate patch, which is fine. 
mm-hmm. sometimes prisms are prescribed in the acute setting, but again, with the knowledge that it's probably going to at least get significantly better. So it, it may be a waste of time and effort in the acute setting to prescribe prisms, although they can be very helpful in some patients. In patients okay. who have a more chronic and stable deviation from a skew deviation, those patients tend to do very well with PRISM. Um, mm-hmm. And if it's to the point where PRISMs um, can't mitigate the symptoms or uh, the patient just doesn't tolerate wearing them or the deviation is too large for PRISMs to be worn comfortably, then a mm-hmm. referral to a strabismus doctor, to an, an eye muscle surgeon um, is appropriate. And, and many patients can have good benefit with that as well. I see. Is there any importance of skew testing post-concussion? So I would say in the same way that a patient presents with the acute vestibular syndrome with Mm -hmm. continuous symptoms, if they have vertical uh, diplopia, if they have a refixation movement with alternate cover testing, your suspicion should be very high for a skew. That being said, all patients who, who present with Um, with dizzy problems or or vertigo or imbalance problems should at least have a a basic, very quick screen for ocular alignment. And Mm -hmm. particularly after concussion, particularly in the acute setting, um, some patients can have um, concussion, which leads to a a vertebral artery dissection, for instance, which can cause a brainstem or cerebellar stroke. Uh, mm-hmm. Other patients with head trauma, usually severe, can have posterior fossa, meaning the brain stem or the cerebellum, damage in the form of axonal injury or hemorrhage, um, each right. of which could cause a fourth nerve palsy or a skew deviation, um, both of which can cause a, a vertical refixation movement with alignment testing and vertical diplopia. So when vertical diplopia is helpful, um, Tests of alignment are, are how we differentiate skew versus fourth, but as a very, at least a screen, all patients presenting with a, with a vestibular problem or imbalance disorder should at least have an a, a ocular alignment screen. Okay, so it would, be, it would be fair to say that it's important to do the alternate cover test and the cover-on-cover cover just to screen all the patients. Correct. So simply just doing the alternate cover testing is enough. And if there is a phoria or a tropia, the alternate cover tests will will elucidate that. Okay. Uh, Moving on to the medial longitudinal fasciculus lesions or the MLF lesions, um, what is the significance of lesions in that area? So the medial longitudinal fasciculus carries a lot of important fibers, um, some of which connect the the sixth nucleus to the opposite medial rectus subnucleus, so that if you have an MLF lesion, um, patients oftentimes will have an INO, an internuclear ophthalmoplegia, where you ask the patient to look to the right, and a patient with a left INO won't be able to adduct the left eye fully. So you'll an MLF lesion will first result in a disconjugate gaze. Um, secondly, because the, not, the, the semicircular canal, the vertical semicircular canal pathways pass through the medial longitudinal fasciculus, that is the anterior and the posterior semicircular canals, patients can have uh, vertical VOR abnormalities, 
Um, patients can have spontaneous vertical torsional nystagmus, usually in the acute setting, that usually goes away pretty quickly, but also because the utricle ocular motor fibers travel through the MLF. Patients with an MLF lesion, which are typically due to either stroke or multiple sclerosis, may have an intranuclear ophthalmoplegia. They may have um, spontaneous vertical torsional nystagmus, and they may also have a skew deviation. When mm -hmm. a skew is present, it's usually on the same side as the INO. So in the mm -hmm. example of a left INO, where the left eye doesn't adduct fully when looking to the right, the left eye will also be higher than the right. It'll be hypertropic. Um, okay. So th there are a variety of ocular motor findings that are typical in an MLF lesion, particularly when the patient's seen acutely. Okay. In the case of the sixth nerve palsy where the lateral rectus is involved, um, how is that typically diagnosed and what impact might it have on a patient's rehabilitation? Right. So in contrast to an INO where there's an adduction paresis, um, which will cause an exotropia, a sixth nerve palsy will cause an abduction paresis and an esotropia. So a, a very um, mild sixth nerve palsy might not be obvious um, on exam when you're asking the patient to look up, down, left, right. There might not be an obvious motility deficit. But an esotropia should be seen in far ipsilateral gaze. So if it's a right sixth nerve palsy, um, usually they have an, an esotropia in the acute setting when they look straight ahead. But that esotropia will be much larger. The crossing of the eyes will be much larger when the patient looks to the right because the right lateral rectus won't work like it should. As far as the mm -hmm. patient's rehabilitation, it really, it's kind of... Um, you can put a sixth nerve palsy into the same bucket as, as any other binocular disorder, um, mm -hmm. and it really depends on sort of the associated signs and symptoms, where in the, in the brainstem or the cerebellum or where along the pathway of the sixth nerve uh, is affected and, and kind of what company does it keep. Um, mm -hmm. So a sixth nerve palsy by itself may not cause dizziness or vertigo or imbalance. It, it may simply cause diplopia. And by uh, placing a couple strips of semi-opaque scotch tape or satin gift tape over one lens, the patient might feel much better and might be uh, better able to participate in, in rehabilitation, particularly if, if their sixth nerve palsy was traumatic from a, a head injury, for instance. Okay. And then given the fact that you mentioned concomitant and non-concomitant gaze, would this palsy be more obvious with, would it be non-concomitant then? Correct. So, so a, this would be a, a paralytic process uh, because there's a motility problem. There's a lateral rectus paresis, and therefore you would expect a non-concomitant esotropia that's greater in the direction of the, the sixth nerve palsy. So in this example, six nerve, right sixth nerve palsy, the esotropia is going to increase in right gaze where there's a problem with abduction because the right lateral rectus isn't working like it should. Okay. Um, what symptoms might a patient complain of to indicate further exploration of a skew deviation? Um, you did mention double vision. Anything else besides that that would indicate that we need to have further testing done? So because the, the, the utricle ocular motor pathway um, it, 
travels from the, the, the utricle peripherally. It goes through the ipsilateral lateral medulla um, and decussates at the pontomedullary junction and ascends via the contralateral medial longitudinal fasciculus. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes there are uh, lots of other neurologic or ocular motor features, the INO, as I mentioned before. Um, So another thing to look for when you suspect a skew is the ocular tilt reaction. The OTR is a triad of signs that includes skew deviation, but commonly that patient who has an acute utricle ocular motor pathway lesion will also have a head tilt. They might have ocular counter roll where both the top poles of both eyes will sort of uh, move conjugately in one direction towards one ear. Um, If the patient experiences double vision that persists when one of the eyes is occluded, this is monocular double vision. So when thinking about double vision in general, it's good to sort of put it into two buckets. One monocular, where again, um, the patient is experiencing, let's say, vertical double vision. You cover one eye and the patient still sees vertical double vision in, in one eye individually. That's suggestive of an ophthalmic cause. It could be a cataract. Right. It could be dry eye. It could be a retinal problem. It could be occasionally a psychogenic disorder. These patients should be referred to an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. Um, patients okay. who have binocular double vision, a skew, for instance, where they have vertical diplopia, it doesn't matter which of the two eyes um, you, you cover, the patient's going to see one. So both eyes open, they see two. Cover the left eye, they see one. Cover the right eye, they see one. Both eyes open, they see two. Sometimes the two images will be so close together. Um, so in a very small skew deviation, if the, if the deviation is very small, they might only experience blurriness, but the blurriness is a binocular blurriness, meaning that both eyes are open, um, they're looking at a visual target, and they see kind of one blurry image. If they cover the right eye, they see one clear image. If they cover the left eye, they see one clear image. Right. So that's, that, that tells us that the ocular alignment is, is abnormal, but it's close enough, the eyes are close enough together that the brain doesn't see um, two distinct images. It doesn't see double, but it does see one blurry image that's worse with both eyes um, working together. So when a patient has binocular blurriness, it has the same implications, diagnostic implications as um, binocular diplopia and should be treated in the same way. I see. There was a lot of... um confusion sometimes between how to name the phoria and the tropia. Could you shed some light on that as to how to go about it and if there is really a rule out there? So there there are rules, um, and the rules are, are basically um, have to do with which eye is looking at the target and which eye is not looking at the target. Okay. So if if the patient has a large esotropia and so that their eyes are crossed. They're looking at the the visual target that you're asking them to view with the left eye and the right eye is crossed in. That would technically be a right esotropia. Mm -hmm. If the patient has a hypertropia that due to a skew deviation um, so that they're viewing with the left eye um, and the right eye is down towards the ground, 
then that mm-hmm. would technically be a, a right hypotropia because the non-fixating eye um, is, is deviated outward. So okay. that being said, in, in the setting of um, in the setting of skew deviations, in the setting of, of vertical misalignments, it's okay to just call everything a hypertropia or a hyperphoria. Uh, okay. So, so in this example, I mentioned that the left eye was the fixating eye, the right eye was the lower eye, the hypotropic eye. So, mm-hmm. if you just want to stick with naming everything by the higher eye, this would be a left hypertropia. I think that okay. making sure that that you're measuring and and naming in the same ways and and that um, it's understandable to yourself and to um, referring doctors and your colleagues so that everyone's on the same page that's much more important than making sure that uh, that the nomenclature is is completely correct okay Um, q is always central until proven otherwise is that accurate and if so why do we say that so it is possible, and I have an uh, I have a um, an educational eye movement library as part of the North American Neuroophthalmology Society, and I do have examples of of so-called peripheral skews. Um, if somebody wants to go look at those, and it's it's definitely been reported, there are cases um, of peripheral skew deviations, status post acoustic neuroma resection after. Um, intratympanic gentamicin injections, it is possible to have a skew deviation as the result of of a utricle, of a labyrinthine insult, or even sometimes with vestibular neuritis. Mm -hmm. So uh, a vestibular neuritis, you're affecting the eighth cranial nerve. The eighth cranial nerve is the way that the afferents from the utricle will eventually get to the ocular motor nuclei. That is part of the utricle ocular motor pathway. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that if you affect some of those utricle fibers in addition to the semicircular canal fibers, then you might have a little skew deviation. And, and in my experience, I've found that in a lot of patients with acute vestibular neuritis who you're seeing in the first couple of days or the first week, um, while with um, alternate cover testing, they might not have a clear vertical misalignment if you use a Maddox rod, which can sometimes be a little bit more sensitive for vertical deviation. You're going to see a little bit of a, a one to two prism, di- uh, prism diopter um, vertical deviation, which may be too small for us to appreciate on the exam, uh, mm-hmm. but but it it happens. And I've seen three or four patients in the last couple of years come in with an acute vestibular neuritis who had a little bit of a skew, uh, relatively small in amplitude on the order of three to four to five prism diopters uh, who had a, a peripheral skew. An initial MRI was negative. A follow-up MRI after three or four days was negative to make sure that this wasn't a falsely negative MRI. Um, and those patients um, resolve and, and improve Patients with a skew who who have clear brainstem or cerebellar pathology tend to have much larger amplitude skew deviations. So I mentioned a peripheral skew from a vestibular neuritis might be in the order of three or four or five prism diopters. Somebody mm-hmm. who has um, a lateral medullary stroke or a Wallenberg syndrome mm-hmm. may have a skew deviation of 20 or more prism diopters. So the, the magnitude tends to be smaller. We think that perhaps um, if 
if the, the interstitial nucleus of Cajal, which is sort of the, the end point for the utricle ocular motor pathways to go to, um, and the vestibular nuclei, if the nuclei um, through which these pathways um, travel are intact, usually they're pretty good at, at modulating the amplitude of the skew and making sure that they go away pretty quickly. So we mm -hmm. think that, that um, if you're affecting the tracks, if you're affecting the nerve peripherally, but the nuclei are still functioning, um, then probably the, the brain's going to do a pretty good job of, of minimizing the degree of skew, the, the degree of the ocular tilt reaction. All this information has been extremely helpful, especially in terms of tropias and phorias and how to name them because it can get confusing at some point. Um, any other pearls of wisdom that you would like to share with us? So I guess I guess if, if your suspicion um, is high enough that, that the patient might have a skew deviation, I would recommend having a very low threshold to refer the patient to a neuro-ophthalmologist if, if one is available mm -hmm. um, close by. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that, that um, I would recommend that, that every therapist and every patient at least do, like I said, a, a basic screening with alternate cover testing. It, it takes a minute or two. Uh, the other mm -hmm. thing that I would recommend is, is making sure, like I said, that the patient can actually see the visual target that's presenting. If the patient is blind in one eye, for instance, um, then even if the eyes are, are crossed to a significant degree or, or there's a very large hypertropia, uh, if the patient can't see the target in one eye, the eyes won't move when you move the, the occluder right. or your hand from right eye to left eye to right eye to left eye. Uh, right. Finally, when you're doing the testing, the alternate cover testing, be aware of the distance of the target. The closer mm -hmm. the distance, the closer the target is to the um, to the patient's eyes, the larger the exo deviation will be. So, for instance, think about somebody who has convergence insufficiency. The closer the target, the larger the the exo deviation will be. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas the the distance of the target. Uh, doesn't mean as much. It doesn't matter as much when you're talking about vertical misalignment, vertical diplopia. But you have to mm -hmm. be aware of the patient's visual function. You have to understand the distance of the visual target. And um, like I said, I would I would recommend performing this testing in every patient at the very least as a baseline. Would you give us an idea of how many feet or inches away you would want us to start when we're doing this testing? So ideally, right, ideally sort of across the room, as long as the patient can see that far is, is preferable. That way okay. you're, you're really going to be able to see whether or not there's a vertical misalignment, whether there's a vertical refixation, because you're going to minimize the, the exo deviation that will occur if the target is too close to the patient. Okay. Okay. Well, this has been extremely helpful and very, very educational. Um, and I think after we hear this and our um, listeners are able to then incorporate this testing in their um, evaluations or also pass it on to other clinicians and include the testing so we can be aware of any skews that are present and direct them appropriately. Um, we thank you for your time. Um, it was very, very helpful, and we did learn a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye.